I don't know about you, but I hate going shopping these days because there are just too many choices. Um, have you ever been to the supermarket to uh, you know, just duck in and get a few things, but you end up spending uh, hours there because there are just too many things to choose from? Uh, if you walk down the toothpaste aisle, there are about 100 different types of toothpaste. If you walk down the breakfast cereal aisle, uh, I don't know why you would need 100 different types of cereal, but there they are all lined up on the shelf. Even buying a carton of milk these days is not an easy exercise anymore. In fact, we have so many choices that psychologists are now talking about choice fatigue or decision fatigue. Uh, we get so tired from the number of choices we need to make every day for seemingly mundane things. Now, uh, today we come to our final passage in the Sermon on the Mount. And looking at this passage can feel a little bit like walking down that supermarket aisle. For you'll notice there that Jesus confronts us with choice after choice after choice. There's the choice of two gates, the choice of two trees, the choice of two confessions, the choice of two foundations, and the choice of two teachers. You see, Jesus has been speaking in the Sermon on the Mount about life in the kingdom of heaven, but now it's decision time, it's crunch time. And Jesus wants to lay out the choices before us and drive us to a decision. But friends, unlike the supermarket aisle, the choice that Jesus presents us with here is really very simple. For it is really a choice between two things and two things only. Although there are many choices that he lays out here, if you make a choice in one, it means that you're actually making a choice in all the others. And so it really is a simple choice. Further, it's not intellectually difficult to work out what the right choice is in each case. You don't have to strain your brain too much to work out what is right. But the difficulty lies in the fact that Jesus asks us to actually choose. He calls for decision and commitment. And if you choose one, you automatically reject the other. You cannot choose both, nor can you find a third way by hitting the maybe button and deferring the decision like you can on Facebook. No, Jesus keeps on pressing us to make a choice, to make your decision, to make your commitment. But notice, friends, that in this choice, the stakes are very high indeed. For according to Jesus, the choices that he confronts us with have serious eternal consequences. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has not been giving us just a moral code in order to be better people. That's how lots of people understand, that's how lots of people understand this sermon. But no, he has been drawing a line between those who have eternal life in the kingdom of heaven and those who by their hypocrisy will find themselves outside the kingdom in hell. 
In fact, the idea of hell, if you've been a careful reader of the Sermon on the Mount, has been there all along. And in this particular passage, you see it. Uh, What is hell like? Uh, Well, you see there in verse 13 that it is described as destruction. Now, Jesus is not speaking here about annihilation. You know, that idea that unbelievers will be destroyed on the last day and simply cease to exist. For later in Matthew's Gospel, he goes on to speak about the day of judgment as the day when when he will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep will go to everlasting life, he says, but the goats will go to eternal punishment. There is something everlasting, eternal, about the punishment that Jesus speaks about here. Destruction is an eternal loss, an eternal ruin. Further, in verse 23, hell is described as separation. Jesus will say to many on that day those terrible words, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You might have heard the joke that many say these days that they really want to go to hell because if they go to hell, then, well, at least their friends will be there. Well, Jesus isn't laughing. For to be separated from him means to be separated from all that is good. And so why do you expect there to be friendship in hell? Imagine the horror of finding yourself alone for the rest of eternity. And finally, in verse 27, hell is described as that great storm that brings down the house of the foolish man. Notice that Jesus isn't speaking about you know, just the different circum- difficult circumstances in life that we might have from time to time. No, this is the, the great day of judgment when the lives of many will collapse into ruin and despair. Uh, Now, friends, it's not a very happy topic this morning, is it? Uh, I certainly don't enjoy preaching on the topic of hell. And I think Christians rightly recoil at the thought of hell. Many Christians have swallowed the lie that when we die, we might just all go to heaven. It was C.S. Lewis who once said about this topic, there is no doctrine which I will more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. I think we can sympathise with C.S. Lewis here, but as he rightly recognises, it's impossible to remove from Christianity the things that are on Jesus' lips, isn't it? Some might have objections. You might say that hell makes God unloving. But this fails to see that God not doing anything about the evil in this world is really the thing that is unloving. As well as the warning after warning that God has sent through his prophets 
time and time again, finally sending his very own son who dies to save people from hell. You might say that the punishment exceeds the crime. I mean, how can my sinfulness land me in eternal punishment? But perhaps we have not understood how much our sin really offends God. You might say that Jesus is just using scare tactics here. When I was a boy, uh, I saw a house on fire. Uh, It was a house just behind uh, the house that I used to live in. It was the first time I realised how powerful fire can be as the flames engulfed the house in minutes. I could see the plumes of smoke rushing up into the air. That night on Channel 7 News, I saw that a mother and child had actually lost their lives in that blaze. Imagine if just a few hours before the fire, someone had actually stood outside uh, the house with a megaphone pleading for the family to come out before the fire started. Would he be trying to scare the family? Probably. Would he be unloving? Well, I can't think of anyone who would accuse him of being unloving. If the fire was real. And so, what are the choices that Jesus speaks about here? Uh, Well, firstly, he speaks about two gates, notice, in verses 13 to 14. Two gates. There is the, the wide gate that leads to destruction, and there is the narrow gate that leads to life. And Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Why is it narrow? Well, it's because if you and I want to enter life, then there are things that we need to leave behind. If you have a great big travel sack on your back, you will not be able to squeeze through this narrow gate that Jesus offers. There are things you and I need to leave behind to actually lighten the load. What are these things that we need to leave behind? Well, Jesus has been teaching uh, all along in the Sermon on the Mount the things that we need to leave behind in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, hasn't he? We need to be prepared to leave behind things like anger and lust and love of money and judgmentalism. If you are not prepared to leave these things behind, says Jesus, then you cannot enter that narrow gate that leads to life. But notice that when you've entered the narrow gate, things don't get any easier. Jesus says in verse 14 that the way past the narrow gate is actually hard. The way is hard that leads to life. Uh, I don't know about about you, but uh, I find that the longer I go in the Christian life, things get harder rather than easier. Uh, Is that your experience of the Christian life? It's a bit like running a marathon. You know, you get off to a great start and you're feeling good, but sooner or later you're going to hit the wall and things are going to get hard. 
It reminds me of what the great evangelist John Chapman used to say. Uh, After 50 years uh, living as a Christian, he said, the first 50 years are the hardest. When he reached 60 years of being a Christian, he revised his original statement and said the first 60 years are actually the hardest. You see, obeying Jesus is not an easy thing. It requires effort, it requires sacrifice, it requires perseverance. And perhaps you're here this morning and you feel like you've hit a bit of a wall as a Christian. Perhaps you're wondering whether this is actually what you signed up for when you first started following him. And Jesus says, yes, it is what you signed up for. The way will be hard. Oh yes, there will be deep joys as you travel along this road. The deep and profound joy of knowing your Father in heaven as the one who loves you and cares for you and provides for you. But the way will be hard. And further notice that it will be unpopular. The road past the narrow gate has only a few fellow travellers while the other road has many people going to their destruction. If you walk through the narrow gate, you will be in the minority. You will not be part of majority opinion. You may even feel lonely as you travel this road. But life and truth is not found in numbers, says Jesus. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ who says, enter. Have you entered this narrow gate? Are you walking the hard path that few walk on, but the path that leads to life? But secondly, Jesus speaks about two trees, you'll notice, in verses 15 to 20. And he's really speaking here about two types of prophets who purport to speak God's word. The true prophet and the false prophet. In particular, he speaks about the danger of the false one, presumably because these are the ones who can deceive people into entering the wide gate and the easy way that leads to destruction. And so Jesus says, beware of them, in verse 15. Uh, What are these false prophets like? Well, you can see that they are deceptive. You can see that in verse 15 that they are the ones who will come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they will appear to be part of God's people, you see. Uh, I didn't, didn't, didn't know this, but uh, the other day uh, I found out that the queen uh, only wears one colour. Did you know that? Uh, if you ever have a look at any recent picture of the queen, uh, you'll notice that her, her hat and her top and her skirt... Uh, are always the same colour. Um, now, it's not just a, uh, you know, a fashion statement. Uh, it actually has a purpose, uh, and that purpose is to be able to mark her out in a crowd if ever something goes wrong. The security detail, her security detail will know exactly where she is. You can spot her in a crowd easily. But it's not like that with false prophets, is it? They are not easily spotted. They won't come with you at, uh, wearing bright clothing. No, they will be part of God's people. Uh, they will appear to be part of God's people, rather. 
even though they are ravenous wolves who seek to destroy the people of God. And so, how do you recognize these false prophets? Well, uh, notice here that Jesus switches metaphors from uh, sheep and wolves to that of trees. And he says that you will recognize them by their fruit. Uh, Apparently, in Jesus' day, there were some weeds that produced fruit that looked like the real thing. Uh, And so, um, thorn bushes produced fruit that from a distance looked like real grapes. But if you got closer, you would see that they were actually not the real thing. Thistles produced fruit that from a distance looked like figs. But if you got closer, you will see that they were not actually the real thing. You see, by looking at the fruit closely, you could work out whether the plant itself was the real thing or merely a weed. Uh, What is the fruit of the prophet? Uh, Well, the most immediate and obvious fruit of the prophet is his teaching, isn't it? But because words are powerful, it will also affect the lifestyle of the prophet. And so so the way to spot a false prophet is by looking not only at the things that he is teaching, but also his lifestyle. Teaching and lifestyle always will go together. In the end, Uh, friends, where will we come across false prophets? Well, you'll see false prophets in the streets. Uh, It's not hard to come across people from different Christian sects, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, or people from any number of growing uh, pseudo groups. To those who are not alert, they will come across as Christian, they will come across as sheep even though inwardly they are ravenous wolves who will lead you to destruction. But I think more and more you will come across false prophets on the internet or on that podcast or on the Christian cable television network. These are the ones who will never speak about unpleasant things like sin and hell and the need for genuine repentance. No, they will be promising that if you follow Jesus, that is the way to self-fulfillment. That you can walk the broad and easy path as a Christian, but not tell you that it leads to death. The danger, of course, is that in listening to these types of teaching on the internet uh, or on any other media, it is actually impossible to see the lifestyle of the teacher. Now, friends, don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm not saying we should never listen to sermons on the internet. But what I am saying is that it is far more important for us to get to know those who teach us the word of God so that you not only know their teaching, but that you can observe their way of life. Teaching and lifestyle always go together. And it is only by looking at both that you can work out whether someone is a true or false prophet. Uh, Whose responsibility is it to be alert for false prophets? Well, uh, I know that as a minister that it is 
uh, a certain responsibility of mine. But notice that here, Jesus puts the responsibility on all his disciples as well, doesn't he? Uh, It's your responsibility as well as mine to be aware of false teaching. It's your responsibility to be growing in your understanding of the word of God so that when false words come around, you'll be able to know and recognize it for what it is. It's your responsibility to know the lifestyles of the people who teach you the word of God. Two gates, two trees. But thirdly, Jesus goes on to speak about two confessions. The scene is the last day of judgment. The one who makes the right confession will enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who makes a false confession will tragically not enter the kingdom but be separated from the Lord Jesus for all of eternity. Notice, friends, that the one who is rejected by Jesus here is not what you might call a pagan, but he is actually someone who seems to be on the inside, isn't he? He is perfectly orthodox in his confession, In verse 21, he calls Jesus Lord, Lord. He knows his Bible. He can spot the false prophet from a mile off. Further, he has done great works, notice, in the name of Jesus. In verse 22, he has prophesied in Jesus' name. Perhaps he's led a growth group for years in Jesus' name. Perhaps he's been on mission in Jesus' name. He's even cast out demons and performed miracles and great works in Jesus' name. You see, clearly this person seemed like an insider. And he was clearly expecting to find entry into the kingdom of heaven, and yet here's the shock When he gets to the last day, Jesus says what is perhaps the most terrifying words in all of the scriptures. In verse 24, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Uh, I've noticed that in my neighborhood, uh, there are more and more churches popping up who are claiming to do miracles. Uh, One church that I pass frequently on the way to my son's school has a big banner across the front saying, expect a miracle. But friends, can you see here that miracles are not a sign that a person has entered the kingdom of heaven? It's not a sign that you haven't entered the kingdom either. But miracles on its own is neither here nor there when it comes to entry into the kingdom. But who is it that enters the kingdom of heaven? Well, you can see it there in verse 21, can't you? Jesus says, it is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is the one who does my Father's will. What is the will of the Father? Well, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, it is to be poor in spirit. It is to mourn over sin. It is to be gentle and meek. 
It is to sow hunger and thirst for righteousness that you and I not just do the minimum to obey God's law, but we do the maximum in order to please God from a changed heart. It is to be merciful. It is to be pure in heart. It is to be peacemakers. It is to speak the truth about Jesus and be persecuted for it. Are you and I people who do the will of the Father? Or do we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, but in our lives there is very little doing? Well, friends, uh, the final illustration that Jesus uses makes a very similar point. Uh, We've had the choice of two gates, two trees, two confessions, but here in verses 24 to 27, you have the choice of two foundations. The wise man builds his house on the foundation of the rock, and when the storm comes, the house, notice, does not fall. The foolish man builds his house on the foundation of sand, and when the storm comes, the house comes crashing down. But what is the foundation that Jesus is speaking about here? Uh, Well, many people will give you the Sunday school answer and say that it is Jesus. Of course, Jesus is the rock. But if you look carefully at verse 24, you'll see there that the foundation is actually the words of Jesus. And the wise man is the one who not only hears the words of Jesus, but the one who does them. The foolish man, on the other hand, is the one who hears the words of Jesus and does nothing about it. You see, friends, just hearing the word, the words of Jesus each week at church or in growth groups will not save you and me from the storm of God's judgment and hell. No, it is the one who hears and then puts into practice the things that we hear who will weather the storm of God's judgment. Uh, Sometimes I watch the TV show Air Crash Investigations. Um, I actually don't like watching it, but I do. Um, The last time I watched the show, uh, it was telling the story of a plane that crashed into the sea. The plane had been hijacked, and uh, it it was diverted to to, to going to Australia. But in the air, it ran out of fuel and eventually crashed into the sea. Moments before the impact, the captain got on the speakerphone and told everyone on board the plane, uh, do not inflate your life jackets until you are safely out of the plane. Do not inflate your life jackets until you are safely out of the plane. The plane crashed. The emergency crews arrived. And they found that many, many people had died because in their panic, they had inflated their life jackets as soon as the plane crashed into the sea. And so as the plane sank, the life jacket forced them up towards the top of the plane so that they could not actually escape. You see, friends, everyone heard the message, didn't they? But it is only the ones who actually did what the captain had said, who lived. Friends, how do you and I 
hear the words of Jesus. You see, this is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? We're all at church this morning, and we've all heard the words of Jesus. In fact, many of us have been here week after week after week, hearing the words of Jesus again and again. What will you and I choose to do about the things that we If we walk out the door today and we choose to do nothing, then Jesus will call you and me a fool and we will have no other blame but else when on the last day we face eternal calamity. In the end, the choice comes down to two teachers. This is how the Sermon on the Mount ends. You can see it there in verse 28, can't you? Verse 28 says, And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, the people recognized that their religious leaders had no real authority in and of themselves. Perhaps the best they could do was to uh, point to or quote from other authorities like the scriptures or other sacred texts. But Jesus, notice, was different. The people were astonished at his authority for he seemed to speak with an authority that they had never experienced before. You see, it was God, wasn't it? who spoke with ultimate authority in the Old Testament when, for example, he gave the Ten Commandments. But remember that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount does not just quote from the Old Testament, relying on its authority, but he says things like, you know those Ten Commandments that you've heard before? It was, it was said to people in days of old, this and this and this. But I say to you, this is what the Ten Commandments are really about. This is how to live. I mean, who does Jesus think he is? And here, as he draws the Sermon on the Mount to a close, close, did you notice the outrageous things that he says and claims about himself? He is the gate who leads to eternal life or the gate who will shut the door on eternal life. He is the judge at the end of time who will decide to let some in and who will decide to to, uh, tell others to depart. His words are the foundation on which your life and my life will either stand or fall on that day. Who does Jesus think he is? It was C.S. Lewis again who said that Jesus gives us only three real options about who he is. He's either a lunatic because it is the lunatic who claims to be God or he is a liar or he is who he claimed to be, the Lord of all things, the God of this world. It's just that when you get to know Jesus, He doesn't seem like a lunatic. He seems like the most sane person who has ever lived on earth. And when you get to know Jesus, he always seems to tell the truth 
and make sense of your life. And so if he isn't a lunatic or a liar, then perhaps he is the Lord. He is God himself. And so how are you going to respond to this Jesus? Who do you think Jesus really is? If he is the Lord, then it will make sense to follow him unreservedly with an undivided heart in your life. Perhaps you've made that choice already before. But for some of us, perhaps we've never really made that choice. Perhaps we've always kept on putting it off. Perhaps we've always pressed the maybe button or the interested button on Facebook. Perhaps we've come close, but we've never actually made that decision. He, Jesus says, it's crunch time. It's decision time. What will you choose? Not to choose is already a choice to reject Jesus, notice. But to choose to follow him is to enter the narrow gate. It is the choice to do the will of the Father in heaven. It is the choice to hear his word and obey. And so will you make that choice and enter the kingdom of heaven with all the joy and all the goodness that comes from being loved by the Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning, and we thank you especially for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to see him for who he really is and follow him daily in our lives. And Father, we know that we won't do this perfectly, but please give us an undivided heart. Please help us to follow him unreservedly through the narrow gate, even if the path is hard, so that we might live. And Father, we pray for those who are finding it difficult this morning to be Christian, who perhaps might be facing difficult circumstances in life, uh, facing difficult decisions, uh, finding it hard to obey you. Uh, We pray for them, that you would be with them and strengthen them and help them to persevere in walking on this narrow road, even though it is difficult. Father, we pray that every time we fail, that you would give us true repentance and true change and transformation in our life so that we might grow ever more into the likeness of the one who died for us to save us from eternal punishment. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.